This is Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. On Saturday, October 14th, we recorded this episode live in front of an audience at the annual PodFest Berlin Festival. What follows is an edited version. Recorded live at PodFest Berlin, supported by WonderTax. Tax returns made easy. So I'd like to welcome you to our third annual Stammtisch. This is a special episode that we do each year that is a scintillating look at the news by journalists and comedians. So we try to take a unique look at the headlines. And we're also going to be taking your questions. First, I'd like to acknowledge the team that is making sure we look and sound good today. In the front here with the headset on is our senior producer, Dina El-Sayed. Thank you, Dina. In the back is our uh, social media intern, Maya Ravlik, who's also going to double as our photographer and videographer today. So she's a jack of all trades. So thank you very much to all of you for helping. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Just a quick few words about me. Um, We were talking earlier about how I'm an American refugee in Berlin. I've moved here uh, permanently. You're going to start seeing more American refugees as time goes on with the uh, changing uh, political and social and cultural landscape in the United States. I'm also a longtime war correspondent who has happily hung up my bulletproof vest to moderate our amazing podcast here in Berlin. And as mentioned before, we have amazing guests here today. And I'm going to introduce them now. Um, sitting next to me with the Barbie mic and the blue dress is uh, <laughs> is uh, my friend and veteran American journalist, Deborah Cole. She's participated in all of our Stammtisch episodes. And I can promise you no Boston native knows Berlin and Europe as well as she does. Um, she works for Agent France Press. And she recently joined the board of Common Ground Berlin to help guide us to stardom. So <laughs> no small task. Okay. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. And... Next to Deborah, at the far corner there, (laughs) is Josh Telson. He is a popular comedian who runs the comedy cafe in Neukölln, and he's also a filmmaker here in Berlin, and he co-hosts the monthly storytelling open mic show called Four Eyes, so definitely check that out. Josh is also no newcomer to Common Ground Berlin. He joined us in April at our live show about the joys and woes of cycling in Berlin. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. And I'd like to welcome all of you. Thanks so much for being here today. And again, if you have any questions... Uh, about what we're talking about, just raise your hand. We're happy to address them. And hopefully you will learn something and be entertained today. It's October, so I'm going to open our discussion with Oktoberfest, which just ended. I'm looking for your thoughts, the two of you here, on this year's beer festival. What stood out for me, let me just start by saying, was the 14 euros 90 cents charged for a beer. To me, that sounded a lot more like Manhattan than Munich, and I'm just wondering what you thought. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, I guess it's just a sign of the times. I don't know. It's uh, another reason for me not to go. <laughs> Am I offending anyone when I say that? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, not me anyway. <laughs> well, one of the things about that was that the price of, of alcohol has increased in general and, and definitely beer at the uh, Oktoberfest. And part of it was that um, it was a kind of post-pandemic year. So the numbers were way back up. So there really was the demand. And they had... Um, uh, they were back to sort of pre-pandemic numbers in terms of visitors. But um, one of the things that kind of stood out to me is that non-alcoholic beer sales also, you know, really increased. And also cocaine sales oh <laughs> so God, like yeah. went like through the roof. <laughs> there were more cocaine busts than 
than ever. So people thought, you know, if they're going to spend that kind of money, that they wanted to get more kind of bang for their buck. <laughs> but that means that people are not drinking alcoholic beer, but doing cocaine instead, right? <laughs> Evidently. So there yeah, was a probably cocaine? for similar money. <laughs> exactly. Was the cocaine cheaper than the beer? Was the co- I could not speak to that, sir. I am. Just was curious, but uh, yeah. But to me, I just think fourteen euros and ninety cents. I mean, we should, we may as well just go move somewhere else in Europe now because it's just becoming too. Expensive. But where? I mean, oh, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Things so, are tougher um, all over. As you say, uh, prices are skyrocketing everywhere, uh, not just at the Oktoberfest. And I certainly personally feel the pinch in my pocketbook when I go grocery shopping or when I go to dine out. I mean, I would say 20% increase is what I'm feeling, maybe even 30, depending on how much we're eating out. And I'm wondering, you know, are you experiencing this as well? I mean, rents, let me just briefly talk about uh, the rent index or meat spiegel, as we call it. They do that every two years. And it was just announced a couple months ago, and it's gone up 5%, which translates to seven euros and 16 cents per square meter. And that's high enough, but I think most apartments you'll see online that are being offered um, are even higher than that because there's just such a shortage of them. And I'm wondering, Josh, if you have any thoughts about why, and we're talking about Berlin here, which used to be poor but sexy, and yeah. <laughs> now we have these exorbitant uh, rents, which are among the highest in, in Germany. Do you have any thoughts about uh, the governments you know, that have come and gone and keep promising that they're going to take care of this and they can't? I mean, is this just an unfixable problem? I mean, can't or won't. I'm not sure that can't is really the right answer. It's just that I don't think that they... Well, I guess that the previous government attempted to, but did a really bad job of it, and it got, you know, right? Am I mixing this up? I'm not supposed to be the knowledgeable one. <laughs> I'm supposed to be making jokes, and there's speak really nothing heart. funny. Speak. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can only speak anecdotally, right? And, of course, there's a shortage. There's more and more people moving here because it's a great place to live. So there certainly is demand for housing. But I can just speak anecdotally, like in my building of 21 units, there are three that are empty all the time and get Airbnb'd. And that's just my building, right? If you spread that around, that's just as much of a problem as the city not being able to build new housing. And then I look around in my neighborhood in Kreuzberg, and most of the buildings that are being built are fancy luxury apartments. Who's going to be able to afford that? So even the stuff that is being built, it's not the right stuff that's being, or it's certainly not the right price that's being built. Part of that is political, and part of that is also just... Well, no, it's all political. <laughs> I mean, there are rules that are in place that prevent people from renting out their apartments on Airbnb or just keeping them empty and they're not enforced. So I don't know. We're in our apartment and we've resigned ourselves to being in a three bedroom apartment for the next 20 years. <laughs> and it'll be fine once the kids move out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's not only a problem of the city government and, you know, and of Berlin, although it does seem so acute because I think the Berliners who've been here for a while, like me, you know, sort of we came here and we got used to Berlin being the cheapest sort of, you know, big city, certainly capital city um, in Europe when it came to housing. And, you know, the thing is that it was the federal government, actually, you know, that said that they were going to ensure that 400,000 new units were built per year and they're not even close to achieving. <laughs> that. And the reasons for that, it has to do with, you know, lack of raw materials is incredibly difficult to get manpower and women power um, to build the housing necessary. And so it's a real weakness of um, Olaf Scholz's government, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. They are paying a political price for that, for failing to deal with this issue that's so fundamental to most Germans and definitely, you know, most Berliners. 
I think we'll be talking about this issue at every Stammtisch we do, <laughs> or we could. Um, for yeah. There really I mean, is no end in sight. Yeah. No, there's not. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, the other frustrating thing, of course, is that there was the referendum was passed, right? Like, and it was passed with a pretty clear majority support. And no one expects the CDU-led government to be caring about that. But the SPD and Green and Linke-led government last time around wasn't doing anything about it either. It's no wonder that people are kind of fed up with politicians being able to do anything about it. And that's just going to keep... When you're talking about the referendum, you mean the Enteignung? Yeah, exactly. In other words, and I can't think of the English word now. I've been here in Germany too long. This is my problem as well. Yes, exactly. uh, Wait, it's the... what, What is it called? The... Expropriation. Expropriation. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll fix that in the edit. Yeah, yeah. Um, the oh, no, expropriation <laughs> bill is what you're English-speaking right. guests can't come up with the word. Okay, so, um, yeah. So any other thoughts about how the conservative Christian Democratic Union-led government is doing here in Berlin? Josh, I'll start with you. Um, you and I talked about their shakeup of cycling infrastructure oh, yeah. plans when we first did the show in April. I was thinking about that the other day because I look this I'm sure that this is entirely anecdotal and it's just me being a cyclist on the streets but I felt like car drivers feel like ah finally the roads are ours again mm. because I feel like I'm fighting like and I I always I hate that term Kampfrad, like you know like a, a fighting <laughs> like cyclist fighting like cyclists? what do you expect me to do on my bike <laughs> you know like there's no fight you're gonna kill me it's not a fair fight <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. but I have felt my life be put in so much more danger and I almost exclusively ride on Fahrradstraßen and on you know that are supposed to be bike streets cycling lanes or cycling streets yeah, yeah. where car Cars are technically not allowed to drive unless you have a purpose of being there. But, of course, no one does anything about that. But just totally anecdotally, I have felt that since the CDU came into power here and very clearly said, oh, we're taking the roads back for cars, that there's been this muscling in that car drivers feel like, ah, we're back on top now. And they've been way more aggressive. I mean, I was never going to be happy with a CDU-led government. But that alone is, yeah, I'm not happy right now. So I feel like we can go back, you know, a few steps. You know, there was this shambolic election that was held the same day as the marathon, (laughs) right? right? And we had had a a government before led by Francisca Giffey, who was never for the, you know, expropriation. She was never going to, you know, implement that, was she? Um, A very fractious, uh, deeply unhappy, uh, left-leaning government that was running Berlin, and Berliners weren't happy with it. They hold the election. according to schedule, but on the same day as the marathon, many, many people were not able to vote. And the federal uh, constitutional court says, Berlin, you have to, you need a do-over, right? Which is so symptomatic. Those of us who've lived in Berlin for any length of time, like you roll your eyes and shrug your shoulders and just, you know, this is where we live. I mean, it's got its charms, but, you know, it's really interesting if you look at the electoral map, you know, compared to a city like Paris, right, which just has a very small city center. And then everything else um, outside, you know, the suburbs, they vote uh, for different officials, right? So you have in Paris, you have um, a green mayor, Hidalgo, who puts, you know, incredibly progressive and green and um, very 21st and 22nd century policies in place for transport. Then you look at Berlin, where all of those suburbs, i.e. the places where people rely on cars a lot more, are Berlin voters, and they voted in their numbers for a conservative-led 
government. And so those of us who live in the city center, who use public transportation, who cycle, I'm a big walker. I walk everywhere or, you know, paying the price for this sort of city country divide, you could almost call it, or at least city suburb. So in any case, that's the situation, you know, that we landed in. And then I don't know if you remember this expression from, you know, U.S. politics, but you got to dance with them that brought you, Mm -hmm. you know. So (laughs) this government is introducing policies that are in the interests of those car driving constituents out in the suburbs. And so, you know, they're doing things like closing Friedrichstrasse, the big supposedly shopping, (laughs) should be, you know, (laughs) shopping uh, street. And that's gone back and forth. That's been this political football I don't know how much you, you guys have followed it, but it's been a real sort of symbolic issue. Are we going to take the central artery of Berlin and turn it into a place that is given over to cyclists and to, or even just, you know, to pedestrians and people sitting, drinking their coffee and enjoying a place that, that has been uh, freed of cars? Or are we going to make it um, a really convenient access for, you know, people driving who want to get from A to B? And it's gone back and forth and back and forth. And for every Berliner who's been here for any amount of time, like you can sort of read so much about their politics if you just ask them about Friedrichstrasse. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's just become this like litmus test issue. So Mayor Kai Wegner, who of course is CDU, did do something unexpected this summer when he called for improved protections for queer people. And he said that Berlin would always be a haven for them, which is not the kind of language you would expect from this guy, especially when a couple months earlier he declared that he would never use gender neutral language while in office. He told the newspaper Bild am Sonntag that he wants to speak German the old fashioned way. <laughs> I mean, it just sounds like he can't make up his mind, which voters he wants to appeal to. Josh? Well, I mean, if anything, it shows you that people have become more liberal in that sense, right? Like, (laughs) it used to be an easy, like, red meat kind of issue to bash, uh, you know, lesbian, gay. And now the paradigm has shifted enough that even a CDU mayor who's in office realizes that, like, you can't play to that anymore. But cars... (laughs) (laughs) That's still the issue, right? And also this issue of the language. I feel like it has a, um, maybe I'm reading into things too much, but like gender neutral language in German would make the language so much easier to learn. (laughs) (laughs) And so somehow this is also like an anti-immigrant. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, (laughs) there's an aspect of it of like keep things to the good old days, but there's also an aspect like we want to make our language as tricky as possible to keep all the immigrants out, right? You know, some of the most misogynistic countries in the world have gender neutral language. I mean, Uh, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, it's ooh, you know, for he, she, it, there is no differentiation. Do we need Change to explain that, that to our audience? Like, I mean, I don't think probably the audience here, but the audience at home or the millions of people listening. About gender across, neutral language? Just, just sort of, I, I'm not entirely sure that it's maybe clear to everyone what we mean by that. So, okay, you know, Deborah, it's, it's up to you. Uh, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> so, um, you know, in German, almost any, um, particularly like, for example, a description of a profession um, has a female and a male variant. And so increasingly newsreaders, um, those of us uh, in the media when we're writing, um, have uh, tried to be more inclusive by um, using formulations that indicate that there are male and female doctors. I mean, we have the luxury in English, if you write the word 
doctor. It's gender neutral. Um, whereas, you know, Astonin and, you know, Asta have to be designated in German. So just as an example, somehow as identity politics have come over the Atlantic um, like rats on a ship and, you know, arrived here for particularly conservative politicians to use a bit of a cudgel like, ugh, don't you hate it when um, they force us to talk in a certain way? You know, the kinds of puppet issues that, yeah, that get exactly, created. Right. So in German, this is one that, um, at least in certain circles, is a vote winner. And so Vigna, you know, kind of uh, flirted uh, a bit with that kind of thing. And then at the same time, he got up on top of one of the floats at the Christopher Street Day, the you know, the big pride parade that Berlin puts on every year and usually attracts, uh, you know, a million people to the streets. So he's trying to have it, you know, both ways. But um, maybe we can transition, because I think that one of the things that you wanted to talk about also was how Berlin politics is in dialogue with federal politics and things and with the AFD, because actually Vigna has in some ways been surprising in being more moderate in, in the real issues Which was not facing Germany. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Recognizing that his city is not a donut, you know, and uh, yeah, he has to address the needs of those constituencies in, in the suburbs. But the fact is the beating heart of Berlin is much more left-leaning and taking rapidly, for example, anti-migrant you know, positions was a thing where he really drew a line in the sand and criticized the head of his own party at the federal level, Friedrich Merz. Right. Yeah, because that actually is the next question. Um, so good transition there. I mean, beyond Berlin, the CDU and CSU, they're making gains across Germany. They recently were the big winners in state elections in Bavaria and Hesse. And the far right alternative for Germany is also doing alarmingly well in local and state elections, not to mention in public polls, which uh, I've started to watch with uh, increasing nervousness uh, because it, it is sort of an indicator of what's to come. Deborah, what's going on there? Why is AFD making a comeback and why is there such dissatisfaction with the parties and the traffic light coalition? Right. Maybe I'll start with the second part of that first. Yeah. So the current government is not very popular. It is the first time that Germany um, on a federal level is governed by a three-way coalition. So talk about fractious. I mean, you've got to constantly you know, be forming compromises among three parties parties that are extremely different from each other. So you have the Social Democrats, they're the senior partner, and then you have the two junior uh, parties, the partners, the Greens and the sort of pro-business uh, Free Democrats. And they traditionally have just in every way been at odds with each other. And so particularly those two are always trying to sort of outfox each other, um, always trying to, via the media, undermine each other's causes, leaking, you know, documents that are going to be embarrassing while they're tr still trying to find a, a common government position. I mean, it's not a great look. And then you have a chancellor who is very concerned about wanting this government not to blow up in his face. So he can't afford to pull rank too often. And so he chooses his battles. And in the meantime, um, this perception gets created, this correct perception that the three parties are not working hand in hand to solve the issues of our time. And uh, God knows there are a lot of crises facing uh, Germany and the world right now. And that anxiety, maybe not even a sense that, that people aren't doing well now, but deep into sort of the upper middle class, people feeling like the future does not look good. It certainly looks uncertain that they stand 
to lose something. And that sense of sort of underlying anxiety is just perfect if you represent a far right party. It's just the best situation that you could hope for. That's sort of, you know, the political situation. And then you have the issue of migration. You can make the case that Germany is not facing a migration crisis, but it is facing a crisis of migration policy. And those are two very different things. Um, In other words, parties like the AFD um, are saying there are too many people arriving and stoking deep-seated fears in the German population, and then conservative parties getting spooked that the far right is stealing their core voters with this issue, and so them mimicking some of the language. And that has had a big effect in the media, and you just have this kind of snowball um, effect that has really lifted, you know, the AFD. For example, last weekend there were two state elections. The AFD came in second in the state of Hesse. So the um, that's the state where Frankfurt is, the business capital of Germany. And then uh, down in Bavaria, uh, they came in third behind another right wing populist party. And so about 20% of the German electorate went to the polls last weekend, and the AFD did really, really well. That um, made everybody sit up and pay attention because they suddenly realized that the AFD is not only anchored in the former communist East, place you know where things economically don't look as good, but in these relatively wealthy uh, parts of the country in the West. And that feels new, and that feels spooky to a lot of people. Well, as uh, we mentioned before, Mayor Vikna does not seem to be really into the AFD approach to migration or to other things. He recognizes who the population is here to some extent. But having said that, Brandenburg, which is around us and which has a lot of uh, cooperation with Berlin, whether it's on transit or other things, you know, the AFD is doing extremely well there. Josh, as a resident of Berlin, does this give you pause? Are you worried that AFD... Yeah, I, mean, I can't go apple gonna... picking anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of course, of course. It's really scary. I think it's also scary because um, we know what happens, right? Like <laughs> there's something that, about this that feels really inevitable and you kind of can't help but look around and say like, there's an, I mean, I'm not going to say easy, but like um, the AFD was rising 10 years ago and then it waned, right? It went down because there was this firewall that was put in place where even the conservative parties uh, were, like, were no way we're, we're not working with them, with them. Yeah, and, exactly. and we're very clear about it. And that's not happening now. And it's crazy because, I, I mean, all right, you know, there's inflation and everything, but Germany's doing okay. Yeah, like things are okay here. It really isn't that bad. There is this anxiety about a lot of stuff, and maybe that's where it's coming from. But uh, it, I can't help but be a little bit afraid, right, um, what this means for the country that we can't put a handle on this um, and that it seems like it's happening everywhere, right? Uh, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Like we came to Germany to get out of a lot of bad stuff in the States, right? Like Germany was a kind of this uh, wonderful place we could come to. And I mean, you know, of course, you always find things you can complain about. But I look, I'm like, well, wh- where do I go? <laughs> you know, like I- I'm not going back to America and Germany's looking scary now, too. I don't know. It's um, I don't have a funny answer. I'm supposed to be the comedian. I don't have anything funny to say about it. There's nothing funny about the AFD. They're horrible. Uh, and we need to clearly recognize that. And people need to speak up about it. Right. That's all I can say. Oh, that's that's OK. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, we've talked about the impact on migration that AFD and this 
rightward trend is having. But Deborah, any thoughts on what it's going to do to the climate agenda, which Germany has actually moved forward on? The war in Ukraine didn't leave much choice. There had to be really some serious soul searching about how we were going to fuel things. Um, But it looks like if we come back to a conservative government, I mean, are we going to see a reversal of this trend? Are we not going to see... Do you mean on the on the federal level? Like if on the federal level, yeah. Right. I feel like we still have. So we're about um, halfway through this term, and because all of the governing parties in this coalition probably would stand to lose if there were new elections, that creates a kind of you know stability actually, and so I think it makes new elections, um, early elections, less likely. So they have another two years to address these matters. I also think that Friedrich Merz, the head of the um, CDU, which is the biggest opposition party in in Germany, this is the party of Angela Merkel, and he was a longtime rival of hers, and he is much more conservative, more right-wing. He's also um, not afraid to dabble quite a bit in populism. He is so incredibly unpopular with large sections of the population, that I think that there are quite a lot of reasons to to really wonder when it comes down to it, if he ends up being their candidate, which at this point looks like he would be as head of the party, either him or Marco Zuda, who is the Bavarian premier, but um, neither of them look particularly strong as candidates. I think the idea of either of them becoming chancellor is so off-putting to so many people compared to a figure like Angela Merkel, who at least in her day was a unifying moderate figure who even people on the left had a grudging respect for her even more. Let's see what happens. But um, the government is you know, making slowly but surely progress on a lot of its agenda. I mean, I think that doing politics, particularly in a three-way coalition, is messy. It's ugly. Um, Germans hate it, like when the parents fight. <laughs> you know, they. I mean, it's really not a vote winner um, having open arguments within the government. But if you look at the um, coalition agreement that they signed two years ago and how much that they have um, managed to achieve from it, you know, forgetting the sort of tone of everything, just as an example, you know, on wind energy, you know, they've already put in more wind turbines sort of in the last six months than they had in the previous 12 months. Um, And those kinds of things often, you know, get less coverage. And they did manage to, it was horrible to watch, but they, they finally did manage to get this heating uh, bill through, which will change the way um, Germans heat their homes for the coming decades and have a huge impact on carbon emissions. You know, they even got Christian Lindner from the uh, FDP, which is the liberal, not liberal as in left-leaning, but liberal as in more business-friendly party, to talk about renewable energies as like a good thing, <laughs> which uh, nobody would have thought yeah. was the case. So they have accomplished a lot. But, you know, the fear, of course, is that there's going to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, um, even though it is so fractious, I do think for the country, it's quite useful to have the FDP in government as opposed to being able to like snipe from the sidelines because the issues facing the country in terms of foreign policy and domestic issues are so huge that if you're constantly bringing in the people the FDP, you know, represents and forming, you know, compromises that speak to those voters' concerns, then I think it does 
medium and long term lead to more stability. I've been here so long, I remember the days where it was just like a red-green government. And it was just really like they could take pot shots from the sidelines every single day of the week because it was this kind of purely left-leaning government. So before I go to the next uh, topic of conversation, which is related to this, by the way, I wanted to see if anyone had any questions because I realized my head was not really turned in your direction. So if you were raising your hand, I might not have seen you. Any questions so far? So there was a a brief reference about all the the many challenges, but there's been no explicit mention of the war with Ukraine. I'm a little bit curious about that. Do you have a comment about that? We decided today to sort of focus on non-war type topics, but I don't know. If, I mean, How can we about, do that? Can I push back and say, should we should we be doing that? Well, because it would be an hour in itself to talk about the war. That's uh, so. But the thing is, I'm happy to talk. We can see if the guests have any thoughts about where we stand with the Russian war in Ukraine right now. Um, is that okay with you guys? Or I mean, I think it does sort of you know tie into what we've been talking about in terms of Western support for Ukraine. There was this extraordinary kind of coalition and this unity that happened that I think Vladimir Putin, you know, did not expect after the invasion in February 2022. And in recent months, there have been signs of a certain fatigue within NATO in terms of that support. And I think that that is of enormous concern to um, Zelensky and, you know, to anyone who believes in Ukrainian self-defense and support for Ukraine in this conflict that has consequences for all of us, I deeply believe. Um, you know, Slovakia had an election a few weeks ago, and then they ended up electing a pro-Russian government. Um, we have Polish elections this weekend, uh, where the right-wing ruling party had been extremely, surprisingly almost steadfast, you know, in its support for Ukraine. And then recently backsliding a little bit, first threatening to no longer send weapons. And um, and then also in terms of the grain deal, Ukraine breadbasket, you know, uh, of the region, unable to export its grain, you know, through the Black Sea um, because of the Russians. And so they were using land routes that went through Poland. And then an election comes up and Various politicians have, uh, and including the the ruling party, have um, turned to nationalist themes and said, oh, we have to protect our farmers, and so we're not going to ship their grain anymore. So in Germany, I think where you see it playing out in this is in the migration question. Germany took in one million Ukrainian refugees, kind of without batting an eye. I mean, they don't even have to go through the whole bureaucratic process of applying for asylum. It's just like, come, we'll figure it out. And that has put enormous pressure on the system. So that's where you have these sort of, you know, local authorities at shelters saying, do something. We don't have enough beds. You know, we don't have enough resources. And so the whole migration um, debate in Germany is kind of also a debate about Ukraine and is making a lot of people nervous. And when elections uh, roll around, it's really testing that solidarity. Um, And so, you know, you saw Zelensky going to Washington. Now we're going to be talking about the political situation on the other side of it, of the Atlantic. Which ties into this question. Which ties into this question a lot. But um, yeah, I think, you know, you are starting to see a certain like fraying. Well, this is the problem. It's a fatigue. I mean, people were in the United States, 
especially we're so tired of Afghanistan after 20 that I think the patience, I mean, there, there's not a realism there where people say or where voters think Ukraine, even with all this weaponry, cannot beat back Russia in, in one year. I mean, one year is a very short time for a conflict, but people don't have that kind of patience and politicians in certain places even less so. They're playing to those voters. I mean, we saw that, as you said, in Slovakia and Poland, and we're seeing it in the United States, and we will see it more here. Although, um, let me actually get to that question because that ties in. Unless, I'm sorry, Josh. I didn't give you a no, chance sorry. to say anything about this if you wanted to add something. <laughs> I, I, again, I don't have anything funny to say. I mean, the, <laughs> the only thing I okay. can say is like I feel like the support from the German government from the leadership was not rock solid. I mean, it was always a little bit wishy-washy. Maybe tangible support was there, right? Like they were actually helping out with money and all that other stuff. But like on the face of it, it, it always felt it a, a little bit. get there. Yeah. And because, then even now, yeah. it, it, it always feels like the German government's kind of hedging a little bit. I feel like that does kind of get then reflected. Like people kind of take that as a sign that like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, like maybe this isn't going well and whatever. And then it's a cyclical thing, right? Honestly, if Olaf Scholz was like even moderately more interesting and was like not afraid of just kind of like saying things sometimes, like the most interesting thing about Scholz was that he had to wear an eye patch for three months. Like that's not a good sign. We don't need a populist leader, but we do need someone who can get up and kind of like rally the people a little bit. And he's not that person. Well, so mm. did this summit that Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany, and President uh, Emmanuel Macron of France, of uh, France, yes, of France. <laughs> I'll say had, France. France. Yeah, why not? That they, <laughs> that they had just this week in Hamburg, um, and that this was one of the topics. They wanted to present a more unified front because, frankly, since Merkel has left, since Angela Merkel has left, Macron sort of envisioned himself as being the replacement, if you will, for her in the EU and has been trying to introduce all sorts of policies that sort of go against what Germany wants. And, of course, Olaf Scholz is not kowtowing to Macron. So these two met in Hamburg. And I'm just wondering, I'll, we'll ask the journalists first, <laughs> was it good for Ukraine? Or is it more of the wishy-washiness that Josh was talking about? It was quite a week this last week. And uh, Ukraine um, ended up taking a back seat. I mean, the other obvious elephant in the room is the situation in the Middle East, which is another one that we decided that either we're going to talk about it in depth and we're going to make it the entire topic of conversation, but it's not one that you, you squeeze in about, somewhere yeah. between gendering and, you know, uh, windmills. Uh, so, you know, that was happening. That ended up... Um, rising to the top of the agenda and the talks. And I mean, it wasn't really the format, but Ukraine, yeah, got very little uh, attention, at least in terms of uh, what happened in front of the cameras at that summit. I mean, I think that Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron are basically on the same page when it comes to uh, Ukraine, but there are all kinds of other issues that they disagree about. And again, like, you know, these state elections spooked Olaf Scholz, Macron has got, you know, his own political problems to face. And so there's been a little bit of a retreat to nationalism in terms of the cooperation that have undermined what's often seen as the kind of like driving force of European integration. So um, we write and write and write. And then one of my brilliant photo colleagues, the photographers, takes the image, you know, that just tells the entire story. <laughs> and um, so Olaf Scholz, you know, is from Hamburg and he invites um, on a like, you know, unpleasant fall day. He invites Macron and his wife Brigitte uh, to Hamburg. 
And the four of them are just standing there and they're eating fish bluechin, this like, for me, absolutely revolting, pickled herring, like sandwich. <laughs> you know, if that weren't bad enough, then with like raw onions on top. And the four of them are standing there and Olaf Scholz just looks like, you know, happy as a clam. And the other three look like they're about to vomit. And it was just like, okay, you know, I don't need to write a story because this, you know, this picture tells it all. Any other, uh, anything, oh, actually, let me ask Josh. Yeah. Did you even know the summit was going on or? I'll be honest with you, I didn't know. <laughs> and that's what I was gonna say is like, I feel like there's a lot of this stuff that gets lost on most people. Like, I think if you ask the average, um, whatever, not I don't wanna say average, I, I hate the way that's framed, but like, just ask anybody on the street, in you know, either France or Germany, like, what they feel about the relationship between Macron and Schultz, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, who cares, right? Like, that, that there's this little bit of a tiff going on between the two of them. But it does kind of become the thing that then, like, dominates discussions, you know, like, oh, what are they going to talk about? And again, that like helps frame the conversation a little bit. Again, I, I want to like him, but he's so uninteresting. I feel like, again, it like it becomes this thing like, oh, there's a little bit of a beef between him and Macron. Like, oh, there is something interesting about Olaf Scholz. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think we can agree. Actually, we can do a show of hands here that out of these three leaders, uh, Scholz, Macron and Zelensky, who's the one who's the sexiest? No, I mean, the, the most interesting, the one that you just kind of gravitate toward the TV to watch. I would say it's Zelensky. It's, everybody's nodding. Right? Yeah. It was a little unfair. He, he, he was on TV yeah, as yeah, an entertainer. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, but he's with his, you know, camouflage shirt and he's right. like, and he's staying. He knows how to play it. That's oh the thing. God, yeah. I mean, he switched to wearing those fatigues when the war came and he has not dropped it. Yeah. And good for him. Well, he was a comedian, I think. Right? Exactly. So right? That's yeah. why he's the best leader. <laughs> I think you have to. All right. Yeah. All right. Any, I'll run for election. Every, <laughs> any political ambitions. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. So um, we're going to move across the Atlantic for our last question here. Oh, wait. Was there, I'm sorry. Was there any other questions in the back? No, no. <laughs> I hope we answered it somewhat. So, okay. Yeah. Well, he's giving us a halfway thumbs up. So that's oh, we, we didn't solve the yeah, <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll talk a little bit next more about we'll what harder. the danger is yeah. with this next question because it does affect or it is affected by the topic we're talking about. And that's the House of Representatives. I'm sorry, House of Representatives. I need to go back to the U.S. more because I'm obviously forgetting everything. But <laughs> that's the American Parliament for those who don't know the American system. And it's rudderless at the moment because the Speaker of the House, that's like the main person, Kevin McCarthy, who is a Republican because the Republicans are in the majority, slight majority in the House, um, he was ousted. Even though he came up with a deal, there was a lot of infighting going on about um, bills that had to be paid. And he was already on very thin ice. And so they wanted to come up with a, a budget because the budget bill had been delayed. And he ended up coming up with a compromise with President Biden, with the Democrats. And right after that, they ousted him. They threw him out. One thing that I should mention about this budget, that's a temporary budget so that the trains and planes and everything keep running for the next few uh, few uh, weeks at this point, right? I think November, middle November, of November. Yeah. So one thing that was missing was Ukraine funding. <laughs> that stood out like a sore thumb because the fact that the Democrats were so quick to agree to it really, I think, is a harbinger of what we might be seeing down the pike, especially as the numbers indicate Trump may end up being the candidate for president. But back to Kevin McCarthy. He's out. So this is the first time this has ever happened in American history, as young as it might be. 
uh, that a speaker has been ousted from the House, and it's been a nonstop battle to name his replacement. Now, yesterday, the Republicans nominated their hard right chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan of Ohio. Now, you have to understand hard right in the U.S., I would say, is even further right than AFD in Germany. Uh, This guy is backed by Donald Trump, and Trump remains the most powerful Republican despite his many legal troubles. On the other hand, Jim Jordan is widely opposed by more moderate Republicans and Democrats, so his being voted in as speaker is very much in doubt. In fact, there is no vote scheduled. I think we were talking about this before, Deborah. So why has the American Congress become so dysfunctional? <laughs> and you have two minutes to answer that question. Why <laughs> has the American Congress become so dysfunctional? Is there, is there anything that sticks out? I mean, because it really, it's, it's always been sort of a dysfunctional place, you know, because you have two parties and it just, very everything's always black and white. It's very hard to find unanimity or to even find compromise. But it just seems it's especially dysfunctional now. Yeah, I think that... If you ever feel um, a little annoyed or pessimistic about German <laughs> politics, like just take one look at Washington and, you know, it all <laughs> starts looking. Oh, yeah, I do it often. Yeah. Uh, fairly sunny. Yeah. So we come full circle about right. why everyone is fleeing the United States to come here. I mean, um, I'm going to do that thing where I'm going to answer the question I want to <laughs> answer. Because, I mean, the, yeah, the, the origins of it are so complex. But in terms of the consequences, you know, immediately uh, we were talking about the fact that, you know, the government could literally not, you know, be able to fund itself within weeks, which would have all kinds of effects for the United States and its people uh, immediately. But we have, again, the issue of Ukraine. You know, they did not approve the funding that had already been earmarked for Ukraine's military. We're heading into the winter. The um, winter offensive and counteroffensive are starting. Putin intends to use winter and the weather as, as a weapon of war again. Zelensky has really only a few weeks now before um, the temperatures plunge and then everyone is going to enter more of a kind of holding pattern to solidify the gains, the modest gains, you know, made this year. So that's the backdrop. And so if the U.S. Congress is literally dysfunctional, is unable to function, then there are consequences over here as well. Um, also for the global economy, you know, for the Middle East in terms of military funding for Israel, in terms of humanitarian support for the Palestinians, which Biden has promised, it would be disastrous. And until the Republicans basically sort themselves out, we're all being held hostage, you know, um, including really everyone in this room, if you care about any of the issues that we've been talking about today. So um, it's a deeply disheartening situation. And the Republicans put forward this guy, you know, Jim Jordan, who completely backed uh, Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the last election and was let's just say, involved in the insurrection of January 6th, um, 2021. And this is the person who's, you know, third in line after the president, vice president to run the U.S. government. I mean, it would be catastrophic if he got in 
And um, and if he doesn't get in, it's disastrous. That's why when we look at German politics, yeah, you know, you can you can take heart. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd prefer boring, I think, to, to this. I, I, when, of course, when day. you look over there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't help but I mean, I know this is going to sound really glib. I don't really mean this, but there's a part of me that can't help but look over there and just I'm so happy that they're eating their own. They're reaping what they've sown, right? Like they came to so many of these Republicans, the Tea Party, they came to power by being as unpragmatic as possible and by being total blowhards and just now that's coming back to them because you've got a handful of Republicans who they don't even know what they want, but they don't want these people. So now we're all stuck. I, and I, they, I see it a bit differently, though. I see that they're a very small group and those people are now running the show. 30, is it a group of 30, I think, uh, in, in Congress? And it's like they have sway over the entire country. And that scares me. I mean, that scares me personally as an American. I wonder, I mean, what, what would we do with a second you know, term with Donald Trump? And that's sort of the direction we seem to be For sure. But in, the know. so-called moderate Republicans helped all of that happen because there wasn't anyone – you know, everyone was too afraid for 15 years to put a stop to that and to not let some of these people campaign off of them and all this stuff. They got Republican Party put money into these campaigns, right? Like, so that's just what I mean. It's like there were enough so-called moderate Republicans who are happy to bring these people in if it meant that they could take over the House of Representatives. But now <laughs> you've got these same people who are preventing them from being able to do anything. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not even really putting forth an agenda of what they want. Mm. No, it's incoherent, but it's also, I mean, the question is also, you know, will the Republicans pay a real price for it politically? And I'm not confident that that kind of feedback loop is still intact in, in U.S. politics. No, that there's no That way. people look and say, you know, wait a minute, what are you doing to, no, to the government? We're going to take more questions <laughs> now. So Thanks. So. Um, in what you've been talking about, and particularly with respect to the U.S., but it kind of affects Germany as well. Um, how do you see the relative roles of kind of media players and I'm thinking Rupert Murdoch obviously Charles Koch as well and all that he represents and Mark Zuckerberg and all the social media that he represents where do you see the relative roles of these in creating this massive polarization yeah, uh, so you. I think in in okay. the I heard in the audience uh, sotto voce saying, uh, "What about Elon Musk as well?" Yeah, I mean, um, there are so many aspects to this uh, dysfunctional ecosystem, and the. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, who is 175 years old and has been influencing <laughs> global politics, you know, for half that time, it feels like that has. Um, Undermine, you know, what I was saying earlier about the feedback loop, you are blowing our government up. And so maybe I will not vote for you next time around. Like that equation doesn't seem to be working anymore. And I think part of the reason is Fox News and things like that. In my family, we call it, you know, the kind of invasion of the body snatchers. Like my, my, parents, you know, had friends who were completely normal. And then they became sort of Fox News, you know, watchers. And it was like they were just getting picked off. They're completely lost now. You cannot reach them any longer with facts. And we saw that, you know, during the pandemic. So, you know, just basic science um, was being rejected. And, um, and so how can you engage in a conversation and a meaningful conversation? These are the things actually that I feel like are still intact in, in Germany, that you can have political debate that is fractious, but there is 
I was about to say a consensus around a, you know a certain I mean, set of principles yeah. that has obviously frayed, but I, I think it is largely you know still intact and um, in a way that in the U.S. and perhaps in the U.K. it's gotten directly undermined by the forces you were talking about, and then you have social media. So making that distinction, Facebook, that also was picking people off from sort of the boomer generation and tends to be older users who get their information from Facebook and uh, getting a lot of disinformation and then seeing all of the controls coming off of Elon Musk's Twitter or, or X as it's now X. called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so just this week with with the situation in the Middle East, I mean, there was an incredible surge of absolutely toxic disinformation uh, that was out there Just that was shaping lies. the debate. Like yeah. Images yeah. from video games and, I mean, I, I don't know. Mainstream media or whatever you want to call it, it's playing less and less of a role in our daily intake of what we digest and, and what we perceive. And you're right, that loop, that feedback loop. And, and the Rupert Murdochs of this world have contributed to that. It'll be interesting to see what Rupert Murdoch, who is now retiring, what his son, whether that's going to continue or whether there'll be some sort of shift. Um, it seems to have made them a lot of money. Fox News is a very popular network in the U.S. Mm. and remains so. For better or for worse, you know, I got a lot of my news or current events from Twitter, right? Like that's, and I've, I wasn't alone in that among, around my generation. And I have not been on Twitter for over four weeks now because I, I just can't deal with it anymore, right? It's, it's, so where I, are you it, getting your news? I don't anymore. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. Now, I mean, all right, I, I, I'll read stuff, but it's not as immediate. It, there was something about that social media channel and, I, and something about Twitter where I was able to, for better or for worse, self-select my sources, you know, and that isn't there for me now. And I, you know, I haven't found the new place where I can keep up with stuff. So you ask me about Scholz and Macron. I mean, part of that is just that I have tuned out to a certain degree and I don't think I'm necessarily representative of, of like a wide swath of people but I oh, know I that I'm not a, yeah well I, think I you absolutely you know, are yeah. yeah and that's the unfortunate thing is like the conservative media is still very loud and has captured a very large audience but the left center left whatever you want to call it there's a hole there's a vacuum there right now and I there's something with Musk I just I, it's like I can't help but think it was deliberate right like I know that he's not that smart to be that sneaky but like there's something about what he's done to that platform that felt like it was like getting back at <laughs> you know this this platform that was very good at kind of pointing out what a charlatan he was mm. and the, the result of that now is that it's not even that it's like a, a black hole of information it's like actively disinformation there that is piggybacking on the fact that it was a platform that was known for being a good source of at least some current events well, it certainly was a way of communicating I, it's it, right. what populates the feed now is it's like you know if it's not cute animal pictures it's like this crazy stuff that just i don't even know you know if you, if you pay you can get you know greater access it's rather depressing anything else that anybody wants to ask i think we've uh, stunned them all into silence <laughs> <laughs> so uh let me uh thank our guests here um afp correspondent deborah cole and comedian josh telson and thank you to all of you for joining us i really appreciate it I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and please check out our podcast, Common Ground Berlin, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could also listen to our episodes at commongroundberlin.com. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and our social media intern is Maya Ravlik. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners are Goethe Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Thank you for listening. 